the beautiful song that follows uh, Revelation chapter 21 and uh, where the Bible says that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes and what a day that will be. We preached uh, recently on the New Jerusalem and we're continuing uh, a very similar thought here this morning uh, looking ahead to the return of Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, if you find your place, uh, if you'll stand with me this morning, Titus chapter 2. And uh, Brother Dave Siebold, could I get you to check the coolers back here and just check out, I, I know the timing on those uh, was going off. Titus chapter 2, and uh, we'll begin here at verse number 11, uh, Titus 2, verse number 11. And it reads, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Uh, this morning we're preaching uh, about the blessed hope of a Christian. We've uh, dealt with the return of Jesus Christ in a lot of our services. And uh, this section of Scripture is such a neat section of Scripture uh, dealing with Christ's return and our hope as God's children. Let's go to the Lord this morning in prayer. And Father, we thank you this morning. You've been so good to us. Good to be in this place. Thank you for meeting with us. Lord, we need to hear from you. And we pray as your word is opened this morning that you would be our teacher. And Lord, we thank you for the truths and the promises that you give us. Lord, always we're mindful that right here in this audience there are some that have special needs today. And I pray that you would minister really through your word by your spirit at that point of need. Lord, guide, help me uh, clarify our thoughts this morning. Help to uh, speak only that which you want to be spoken today. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated this morning. Yes, you're seated. I want you to go back again to verse number 13 and read this verse with me uh, where the Bible says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. As we speak about hope we're talking about a biblical hope. Um, uh, so often we, we in this life will say something like this. I, I hope we win the game. I, I heard some young people saying that and, and they were like junior high playing against a high school team and they were short and the team they were playing was huge and I hope we win the game. And in reality, they pretty much knew they weren't going to win that game. It was already pretty much decided before the game started. And yet we speak of hope in that sense. Now the biblical hope is nothing like this. Uh, the biblical hope is something that we know is going to take place. We have God's promise. We have a firm assurance. We just don't know when it's going to happen. So when we speak of the hope of a Christian, this blessed hope, we're speaking about the rapture. We're speaking about the time when Jesus is coming back for his children, uh, the resurrection of the dead saints, the catching up of living saints. And when we speak of saints, we're talking about those who have been saved. That's the biblical definition 
of a saint. It's one that knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Bible speaks here of that time that we will meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to take just a, a period of time and look at the context of this scripture. It's always important to get the context of scripture. We're going to uh, very briefly get the context of this scripture, and then we're going to delve into this blessed hope this morning. Now in the context, this letter is from Paul to Titus, and Titus was one of Paul's preacher boys. If you go to Titus chapter 1, verse number 4, as Paul writes this letter, he says to Titus, my own son, after the common faith. I think there's a very good chance that Paul led Titus unto the Lord, and he no doubt trained Titus and prepared Titus for the ministry. Now Titus was leading the church on the Isle of Crete in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Paul said, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Now the island of Crete was known for its very sinful and rebellious ways. Look in Titus chapter 1, verse number 12. He says, One of themselves, uh, speaking even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, this witness is true, Paul says, as he looks at this island. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And so Paul, now knowing the background of this island, exhorts Titus to guide this church, this church or these churches in sound doctrine. In Titus chapter 2, verse number 1, he says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Now, when the Bible speaks of doctrine, doctrine is important. Doctrine is what we believe. Doctrine is our foundation. If the doctrine is wrong, everything that you build upon that is going to be wrong. Uh, when we built this building, we were very clear that this foundation had to be right. So we invested much in this foundation. We did not cut any corners in this foundation. Uh, we wanted to build a building, and we wanted this building to stand. And so we put a solid foundation, invested much in this solid foundation. And so it is with doctrine. If your life is to stand and reflect the Lord, what you believe has to be right. This is why in the book of Acts chapter 2, the church in Jerusalem, when 3,000 were added to that church in one day, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And this doctrine of the apostles was the same doctrine that Paul taught to Titus, and it's that doctrine that Titus now is to teach to these churches in Crete. As we come closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is why I wanted to get the context. It's going to be very clear that many will neglect doctrine. Many will have no idea as to what they believe or why they believe it. They'll be vulnerable to the wiles of Satan. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul gave the warning, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He says, but after their own lust, they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And I believe very clearly we're seeing this happening all across our world, across America, churches across America. Churches that used to stand for truth have departed from that truth. Right doctrine is important. Right doctrine will lead you to right living. 
what you believe will eventually determine how you live. And so this chapter puts great emphasis on right living in light of right doctrine and in light of the blessed hope or the rapture of the Christian. Now, what Paul is expressing to Timothy, the church must teach the doctrine of right living. Uh, Crete was known for its sinfulness, as we pointed out. Uh, but salvation changes a life. I believe when a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're a new creature. And the Christians in this church of Crete were a testimony. They were to be a light. They were to be salt to all of this island. Uh, the sloppy living of many Christians who claim the name of Jesus grieves the heart of God. And I believe we're living in a day because doctrine is wrong in the life of so many. The living of many is wrong, wrong and many will walk in such a way that when Christ returns, they're going to be ashamed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Titus was to teach the members of the church in Crete or these churches in Crete how to live so they could bring glory to God. Now as we look through this section of scripture, I'm going to briefly cover chapter 2 as we build up to the blessed hope. Uh, Titus was to teach the members and this church was made up of all age groups. That's a healthy church. In this church, there were the elderly. I thank the Lord for Valley Bible Baptist Church, and, and we have the elderly. And then there were the young, and I thank the Lord that we have the young, we have the children, we have grandparents, we have parents, we have children, we have singles, uh, we have all age groups, and God has been good to us, and that's a healthy church. We need all groups, and all of us mesh together and learn from each other. This is the background of this passage of Scripture. I'm going to very briefly cover some of the things that Paul expressed to Timothy. He speaks to the elderly man in verse number 2 of chapter 2. He said that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. I'm not going to go over all of those details, but I can say this. A church is blessed when we have older men that know the Lord and walk with God. And I thank the Lord for the men that God has given us at Valley Bible Baptist Church. Uh, my life has been blessed with older men or men that were older than me. Had a grandfather, very wise man. He was a man's man. He was a leader. I thank the Lord for the principles I learned from him. My father is my hero. I look up to my father. I learned from him. Uh, he's guided and helped me in so many details of my own life. I've known godly pastors. We were privileged here at Valley Bible Baptist to have Brother Wilkins for so many years in our church here. Uh, Brother Whitehead, who sent an associate pastor to this church, has been a dear friend, and this church was founded way back in 1974 because of the vision of Brother Whitehead. Thank the Lord for Brother Gilman, Brother Sal Garcia. These men, uh, with the exception of Brother Whitehead, have gone to be with the Lord. They were mentors to me. When I first came to Valley Bible Baptist Church, this church was mostly older, retired folks. There were a few elderly men. They built our old building, and they had a vision of what God could do in the valley. Thank the Lord for the elderly man. And then in verse number 3, the elderly women. He said, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior. And notice right living, as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Thank God for women who have walked with God and their lives reflect Him. Uh, they've gained, they've learned, they've raised their children. 
Uh, they have helped with their grandchildren. And they had a lot of insight, a lot of wisdom. They're not gossips. They're not busybodies and other men's businesses the Bible is describing, but they walk with the Lord and know the Lord and love the Lord. He says in verse 4 that they may teach the young women to be sober. They're teachers, examples for the young women of the church. And thank the Lord for godly older women here at Valley Bible Baptist Church. And then the young women, verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Our modern school systems and the feminist movement of our day, and I may get myself in trouble here, but I'm just going to speak the truth today. It's done great disservice uh, to young ladies today, uh, teaching girls instead of pursuing uh, the height of what God has intended to pursue, careers and all sorts of things that uh, are not necessarily going to bring the joy and the happiness that God intended. And a young wife should have as her number one priority her walk with God. And out of that walk with God, her next priority would be her husband, and then her children, and then her home. Now the virtuous woman of Proverbs chapter 31 was a tremendous example of this, but also she was able to work and earn money for the home, to help with the home. But her priority was first God, then her husband, her children, her family, in that order, and then the work. Verse 5 says that the word of God be not blasphemed. When the principles of God's word are not followed, the church loses its power and influence. Uh, verse number 6, we have the young man. He says, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, uh, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing, to say of you. And oh, how we need godly young men that reflect Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And again, I thank the Lord for some young men here at Valley Bible Baptist Church that are rising to the occasion. They'll be the future leaders here at Valley Bible Baptist Church. They'll be the future uh, teachers and workers here in this church. And thank the Lord for those that He've given to us. Uh, then we go to the servants in verse number nine. He says, Exhort servants. Uh, in our society, this would speak to employees, uh, that they be obedient, serving us unto the Lord. He says, not talking back. Uh, that means not, not uh, uh, back-talking, uh, not purloining or thievery. Uh, millions of dollars stolen by employees from places of their work. I believe a Christian employee ought to be the best employee, and that's the direction that is given to us. See, when doctrine is right... Your life will be right, and it will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, as is mentioned here in verse number 10, and it will draw people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the local church must teach the doctrine of right living. Now we move from that doctrine of right living, and this is where we're going this morning. The church must teach the doctrine of God's grace. Look with me in verse number 11. And it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Now, right living is born out of God's word. And right living is born out of God's grace. And this is our focus this morning as we consider our blessed hope.
See, the doctrine of grace is so crucial. Grace is God's unmerited, His undeserved favor. The Bible teaches we're saved by grace. It's not of works. We're kept by grace. I believe in eternal security. I believe when the Lord saves us, it's the Lord who keeps us. Uh, we're changed by grace. We'll see that this morning. Uh, when grace enters the heart, it begins to change the life. We serve by grace. Uh, when we suffer, we suffer by grace. Uh, and it will be grace that prepares us for Christ's return. It's grace that prepares us for the blessed hope. Paul said to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul learned the importance of grace in his own life. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, I want to break this grace down into three aspects or three parts or three, we might say, time zones or time frames of grace. There's the grace of salvation. And that speaks of grace in our past. Again, verse number 11, and it reads, For the grace of God. It was God that brought salvation. It was God that took the initiative. It was God that reached down to man. It was God that came to Adam and said, Adam, where art thou? It was God that called Abraham in grace. The Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, to a land that I will show thee. And God, in grace, as he reached down to Abram, said, Abram, I will make of thee a great nation. I will give you a land and a people. And it was God that came to man, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It was God that took the initiative, the grace of God that bringeth salvation. And he says in verse number 11, hath appeared unto all men. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that he lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And it's my conviction that salvation is offered to all. Uh, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not all receive, but all have an opportunity to receive of that grace. Now as we go to verse number 14, here's what grace did. He said, who gave himself for us, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was made to be sin for us. He lived a perfect life. And yet my sin, your sin, was placed upon the Lord Jesus. We can think of every vile and immoral act that has ever taken place in this world. And Jesus was made to be sin. He was made to be a thief. He was made to be a liar. He was made to be homosexual. He was made to be an adulterer. He was made a whoremonger. He was made an addict. He was made all of these things upon the cross. He was made uh, to be filled with hatred, that hatred of the world placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made to be sin for us. He took our place. He took our punishment. He bore the wrath of God. The Father turned His back upon God the Son because of Jesus giving Himself for us. And He says in verse number 14 that He might redeem us from all iniquity. The word redeem means to purchase back. It means to ransom, to rescue from captivity, to rescue from bondage. And that's what sin did. Sin condemned us. We owe a debt. We were Satan's captives. We were lost. We were doomed. We were dead. We were on the road to hell. 
But Jesus redeemed us. He purchased us with his blood. And what the Bible is teaching very clearly, salvation is of his grace. You go to chapter 3 of the book of Titus in verse number 5. And we read, not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not our goodness. It's not our baptism. It's not sacraments. He says, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. I've quoted Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. See, this is the message that saved us. It was God's grace. This is the message that prepares us for that blessed hope. This is the message that we are to preach. Salvation is a miracle. Uh, an atheist I read just recently got saved. Uh, he went to a meeting, a revival meeting. His purpose in going to the meeting is during the service he was going to disrupt the preacher. He was going to ask the preacher some questions that he felt the preacher probably could not answer. He was going to give all of this information that brought him to this place of atheism. He went to the meeting as the preacher began to preach of the marvelous grace of the Lord. God brought this atheist under conviction. And he could not rise up in rebellion in that meeting. After the meeting, he went to the preacher and all of his answers or all of his questions were answered by that preacher. And this atheist bowed on his knee and gave his heart this life and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, was gloriously saved in a moment. God's grace. And that man then became a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. See, that's grace. It's the message we preach. God offers the gift of salvation you must receive it as many as receive it uh, or as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God even to them that believe in his name. See, until you receive that gift of God's grace, you have no blessed hope. That's the grace of salvation. If you're saved, it's the grace in your past. But then there's the grace of sanctification. This is grace in our present. Look in verse number 12, Titus chapter 2. Uh, teaching us, here's what grace does. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. The grace that saves us changes us. Teaching us. When we get saved... Our sin is blotted out, forgiven. Christ's righteousness is put to our account. But that's only the beginning. From the moment we're saved, God begins a work in our hearts. It's a work of grace. He begins to change us from within, making us like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened in Antioch. The church in Antioch, Acts chapter 11, uh, many were saved. The Lord was gracious, merciful. And then they, for a whole year, assembled themselves in the church and they were taught the doctrines of the apostle. But grace changed them and they were called Christians first in Antioch. That word Christian means little Christ. What happened is God so changed their life that others looked upon them and said, these people are like Jesus. They love like Jesus. They talk like Jesus. They act like Jesus. They have a burden like Jesus. 
Their lives are not what they used to be. We've seen the change in their lives. The Lord has changed them, made them different. They used to serve false gods and the temples at Antioch, but now they serve the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Christians. We see it in their homes. We see it in their lives. We see it at their place of work. We see it in their neighborhood. It has changed everything about them. That's what Christianity does. Uh, teaching us. So you see, I, I've got a little bit of problem. Somebody says, I know the Lord and I was saved back when I was a little boy or a little girl, but there's been no change in the life and there's no fruit of that salvation. See, I believe the gospel changes a life. See, salvation, that's only the beginning. From the moment we're saved, God begins to work in our hearts. He begins to change us from within, begins to make us like the Lord. From the moment of salvation, he prepares us for that blessed hope. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, Husbands, he says, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. But notice the statement that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. See, the Lord begins to change us. He teaches us by His Word. He guides us by the Spirit that He has given to us. He corrects us with His love. He puts His chastening hand upon us. This is why I believe in eternal security. From the moment of salvation, God begins a work of sanctifying grace. He speaks through His Word, by His Spirit. He spanks, He even calls home early at times, but He never lets go of His child because He's preparing his child for the blessed hope. Now there's both, as you look at verse 12, there's both a negative and a positive aspect of God's teaching. In verse 12, you'll see the negative aspect, teaching us the denying ungodliness and worldly loss. Ungodliness, anything that's not Christ-like, anything that doesn't please Jesus, uh, thoughts, words, actions, what we listen to, what we view with our eyes, where we go, he convicts us. Uh, the music, I, I think back to the music I listened to before I was saved. And the Lord began to convict me of that music. It didn't change overnight, but gradually there was conviction that what I was listening to did not glorify the Lord. Uh, then there was the conviction that some of the things I was watching on television were not glorifying the Lord. The thought came to me, what if Jesus returned what I'm watching this particular program? I would be ashamed. The big thing in the town that I grew up in was to go to the dance on Friday night. And the Lord began to convict me, what if Jesus came? I would be ashamed for him to catch me in such a place. See, denying ungodliness, the Spirit of God begins to teach us worldly lusts. The Bible tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life, is not of the Father but is of the world. Uh, he says in James 4, verse number 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. See, I'm afraid of the sloppy living of many Christians. It's going to cause shame when they stand before Jesus Christ at his return. That's the negative. But notice in verse 12, the positive. He says that we should live soberly. That means self-control over passions and desires that are not Christ-like, soberly, righteously, doing what is right at all costs. It would be like Daniel who purposed that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. 
Be like Daniel, knowing the decree of the king would continue to pray in his room three times a day as he'd always done. It would be like Joseph rejecting the advances of Potiphar's wife, living righteously, godly, reflecting Jesus in this present life. In verse 14, Of the Lord who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He wants our life to reflect Jesus Christ and reveal Jesus to a lost world. Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. So as we look for the blessed hope, does your life reflect Jesus? And if not, you'll be ashamed when Christ returns. There's grace for salvation. That's grace in our past. There's grace for sanctification. That's grace in our present. But here's where we're going this morning. There's grace of glorification, grace for our future. Again, verse 13, where we started this morning, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we live in this world, we're to recognize this world is not our home. We're not to get too attached to this world. We're to be like Abraham, looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. In this world, we're pilgrims and strangers marching through. We should be looking for, longing for, waiting for, and praying for Christ's return. Now, the return of Christ is in two phases. Looking for that blessed hope. I believe this is the rapture. I believe it's imminent. I believe it's the catching up of his bride, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, he said, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, will be changed in a moment of time. That's our glorification. Never to sin again. Wow. No more to fail. No more to fall short. Oh, what grace. Undeserved. Unmerited. Given freely to those that know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's our blessed hope. Now look at the latter part of verse 13. I believe this is phase two, looking for that blessed hope, but notice the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, a reference to the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. The time when every eye will see him. Revelation 19 describes it, that he comes from heaven riding the horse. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to notice this morning the clear reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 10. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no denying who He is. When Jesus comes in power and glory, He's going to be seen as the Creator, the Almighty, the one worthy of glory and honor and power, uh, the one worthy of our worship, the one worthy of our praise. What grace! 
Because I had not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God had prepared for them that love him. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Our blessed hope, it's grace in our future. There's, if you're saved this morning, grace in the past. Salvation, it was God's gift. The moment you receive Christ, your sin blotted out. But there's grace in our present. That's sanctification. Not only does he forgive us, but he changes us, molds us into the image of Jesus Christ, creates us that we might be his workmanship in Christ Jesus. And then there's grace in our future. That's glorification. And so what Paul is expressing to Titus, we're to teach we're to preach this doctrine of grace in our church. Friends, we ought to look for that blessed hope of Jesus and his return. This world is not our home. This world's fading away very quickly. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and his wonderful promises to us. I'd like for a moment every head bowed.